Okay, this afternoon we have a session uh, for you on hazardous and, and land use planning. Um, one of the studies highlights preliminary results of a project that combines design-based methods that capture social values, preferences with model-based methods to analyze the risk environment over time and to evaluate the likely consequences of policy choices. And another presentation will demonstrate how to provide community with quantitative values via hazards for planning purposes. And with us this afternoon, we have Murray Journey um, from Geological Resources Canada. And I have a little bit of information about him. <laughs> Let's see. Um, and Dr. Journey works as a research scientist with um, Geological Survey of Canada. We also have Laura Denins from the U.S. Geological Survey in California. And she has been an operations research analyst for over 13 years. And finally, we've got James Malby of Dewberry, and he's a certified uh, floodplain manager and project geographer. So if we want to get started, Mr. Journey, somewhere. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you very much. Uh, my presentation today is going to focus on the bridge between risk assessment and land use planning. And uh, specifically, what I'd like to introduce to you is uh, uh, some work that we've done this past year in partnership with um, a group uh, that represents the land use planning profession uh, who've been working on scenario modeling, integrated assessment scenario modeling tools for well over 15 years. It's an initiative like Houses that has involved uh, a large number of practitioners uh, over the years. And so at one level, you can uh, think of what I'm going to present to you as uh, a bridge between uh, two very uh, exciting initiatives from my perspective that bring together best-of-breed methods for risk assessment, that being Houses, and best-of-breed methods for integrated assessment and scenario planning. I'll be speaking about a, a similar uh, program called Community Biz. Um, that's used widely in the uh, planning profession. And what I'm going to show you is uh, some uh, work that we did this year to bridge those two programs so that they can uh, be used interchangeably. My co-authors on this presentation are Kelly Llewellyn, who is the programmer for this project, uh, Doug Walker and Eric Christensen, who are with uh, Placeways, the uh, developers for uh, Community Viz. Uh, the work that I'm presenting is part of a broader uh, project that I've been involved in for the last five years. Uh, the goal of that has been to build a framework for integrated assessment and risk-based planning in Canada. And uh, I won't go into much of the details of the framework, but I wanted to uh, just give you a sense of uh, what the framework is. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we've worked on a, a process uh, for doing risk-based planning uh, that brings together both emergency management practitioners as well as the land use planners. And so we've tried to formalize what the process is as a workflow. I'm not going to take you through the steps, but this is an important context in which to situate um, risk assessment tools and, uh, and planning tools is to understand where they fit 
in the process, who's using them, how are those people using the outputs of these models uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, generally, if we were to think about this as a, as a workflow, so a, a series of steps, uh, it begins, uh, whether you're an emergency manager or a land use planner, with um, doing the basic risk identification, identifying the goals and objectives for the planning project, um, and then going into the uh, second phase of analysis. Um, and depending on the capabilities of the community, uh, that analysis can either be a semi-quantitative risk appraisal, uh, and there are a variety of methods used uh, in Canada, both at the national and, and local scale, for doing this, um, or, and or it can also be a quantitative uh, risk analysis. Um, for the quantitative risk analysis part, we've selected hazards as a, a, a best practice and are in the process of adapting it for use in Canada. The, um, the second piece, once you've uh, done the risk analysis, uh, is to then look at the results of that analysis in the context of uh, mitigation strategies. Uh, and here you're trying to answer the question, what do we do about uh, the exposure we have to floods or earthquakes? Uh, so here you're really focused on how to develop mitigation strategies that either optimize or balance trade-offs between uh, management goals. And uh, I think it's here where um, we can lean very heavily on the work that the land use planners have done over the years and the work coming out of the field of integrated assessment and scenario planning. And that's what I'm going to focus on here. Uh, you're very familiar with the methodology for uh, generating outputs from houses um, presented either as tables or a series of maps in RTIS. Uh, what I'm going to present to you today is uh, uh, results of, of our work to extend the capabilities of HAZUS into Canada and to, while we're doing that, build a capability uh, to introduce uh, scenario-based modeling as, as part of the process of risk-based planning using a combination of, of HAZUS and Community Viz. Uh, the way I'm going to do that is uh, give you a brief introduction to Community Viz uh, for those that aren't familiar with it. Uh, uh, secondly, I'm going to focus on the um, integration tool that we've built to bridge uh, has us to Community Viz. I'll show you how that works with a short demo. Um, thirdly, I'll give you a sense of the kinds of outputs that the um, Decision Support Wizard generates and how they're used in Community Viz for scenario planning. And that's about where I'll run out of time. Um, but uh, the full presentation will be uh, um, on the, uh, in the proceedings. So if you want to dig into some of the details and more uh, you can do that later. One of the reasons that we're doing this is to try and focus on the question that we're asked when we engage with uh, end, use, end users, um, and that is how safe is safe enough and what is a tolerable threshold of risk? Uh, these are really difficult questions to address, and um, we've found that uh, we needed to get into a scenario modeling environment in order to engage uh, planners and emergency managers uh, to address these questions. Uh, so what is Community Viz? Uh, very briefly, um, it is like has uh, a, a geospatial modeling application that's built on top of ArcGIS. Uh, it's specifically designed for integrated assessment and scenario planning. Uh, it has uh, three very important capabilities. One is it is designed first and foremost to help uh, visualize um, the, uh, the landscape and to model the landscape uh, using uh, models that are user-generated. Uh, 
And thirdly, it has some very powerful communication tools. This application was designed specifically to assist planners in communicating uh, uh, their strategies to decision makers. And so they spent a lot of time thinking about how to uh, communicate the outputs of scenario models. I mentioned the visualization capabilities. Uh, it integrates with industry standard um, 3D visualization tools. Uh, it comes with its own 3D visualization engine, but also outputs everything to uh, Google Earth and, and a variety of other 3D modeling environments. So the outputs of your models can be taken and shown interactively if, if there's a requirement for that. Uh, thirdly, it, it has some very unique and I think uh, well-designed um, modeling capabilities for the work that we do. Uh, it has uh, some very strong capabilities for doing land use modeling. And, and, and here, uh, what I find most useful is the ability to uh, build future scenarios for a given community or region and to be able to then run houses against those future scenarios to get a sense of how uh, um, conditions of vulnerability and risk are likely to change over time. Uh, presenting those results to decision makers helps them to think about their choices and consequences in a very uh, real kind of way. Um, so I think that's a very powerful uh, capability. Um, mentioned a little bit about the communication pieces. And like Hazus, uh, CommunityViz has a very, very large uh, user base in the United States and increasingly outside of the United States. Uh, so people know how to use this tool. They use it every day in their offices with their planning departments, um, like Hazus users. And my, my hunch here is that if we can build a bridge between these two communities of practice, uh, we'll learn a lot from each other. And that's really, uh, I guess, the motivation here. Uh, so I'm going to do this through a series of um, uh, through a series of movies. Uh, what I'm showing you first off now is uh, the tool that integrates Houses with Community Viz. Uh, so we're in ArcGIS. Uh, we're running Scenario 360. Uh, we've just finished doing a couple of Houses runs. And in, uh, in ArcGIS, in the 360 module, uh, we've now built a decision support tool called the Hazus Risk Assessment Wizard. And um, I'm just running that wizard right now. And you can see that it connects to uh, your Hazus um, uh, directory. It's reading the uh, default values for where you're storing your regions and allows you to go into your region directory and pick uh, particular uh, Hazus runs uh, that you may have generated uh, for a particular project and uh, bring those into a multi-event or multi-hazard uh, a risk assessment environment. Um, here we're going to, uh, this illustration, we're going to build a, a community viz analysis that consists of two or three uh, hazardous model runs. Uh, these can be single hazard, multi uh, recurrence event uh, scenarios, or they can be multi hazard event scenarios. Uh, we've built the model so that it can manage both uh, earthquake, flood, and hurricane uh, model outputs. Um, and so uh, this part of the wizard is just uh, going through the process of selecting which hazard event scenarios we're going to select for our scenario modeling. And uh, we're almost done here. I'm just going to pick one more. Uh, uh, and the reason that we thought this would be helpful is to look at um, a portfolio uh, of hazard threats uh, in a scenario modeling environment. Uh, so I've selected my three scenarios. Uh, as in Hazus, I can now go in and select which regions of my study area I actually want to do the scenario modeling on. 
so I can interactively go in and, and pick either pieces or the, the entire study region that I've run in my hazardous model. Um, uh, here I'm just uh, selecting a few, uh, a few study uh, census tracts from my study region, um, or I could have selected the whole study region to run. The last piece is picking which indicators uh, you want to use in your scenario model. Uh, we've written a number of indicators that take hazardous outputs uh, and combine them in different ways to report on hazard threats, uh, system functionality, public safety, and uh, socioeconomic security. So that would be uh, economic losses. And um, here's a list of uh, all of the layers that get generated uh, for this particular uh, analysis. And the indicators on the right-hand side, uh, they go along with, uh, with, those, uh, with those layers. So this is really kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the integration piece. Uh, it's not too flashy, not too sexy, but for anyone who has gone through the process of um, extracting model outputs from houses uh, and combining them in ways for other purposes, um, as Doug and his colleagues have demonstrated, uh, it, uh, it can be very powerful when you get the results in a, in a form that you can start comparing one, one scenario against the other. Okay, so um, uh, bear with me here. Uh, so the second piece I'd like to show you, and I'll use a similar uh, methodology, is the scenario development piece. Um, so now that we've built our, uh, uh, our multi-hazard uh, analysis in CommunityViz, we now have access to all of the capabilities of CommunityViz Scenario 360. Uh, so we can either modify or, or develop new indicators uh, if you have a particular need. Uh, CommunityViz is a wide open modeling environment. Uh, so if there are specific analytic requirements that you have, you can build your own indicators. Um, this is an illustration uh, you can see on the left-hand side of the, the kinds of layers that we're, we're pulling out from the hazardous runs. Um, it includes uh, hazard maps, the general building stock, um, and others that I'll show here in a minute. Um, so what I'm going to do now is just zoom into a study area that we've been using to uh, try and uh, understand how this might work. And this is the District of North Vancouver uh, in British Columbia, and we're just looking at a a user-defined ground shaking model that we generated for this uh, region, um, and some liquefaction permanent ground deformation models that we've generated. So this, is, this was the base for our, our hazard model. Uh, this information brought into CommunityViz as, as context now. Uh, the next I'm going to go up and, and show you uh, what some of the information for building stock looks like coming out of uh, the, the wizard. Uh, so I'm just going to turn on uh, the general building stock, um, and I've this is one of the indicators that we've built. It's just a simple loss uh, ratio indicator. Um, and I'm opening up the attribute table to give you a sense of what we're doing here in the back end. We're combining the asset inventory tables from houses. Uh, so that's for those of you that have gone into the SQL database, you know that there are asset inventory tables and there are model output tables. And what we've done here is combine them into a single table and the reason is that uh, that provides a very uh, nimble environment in which to build uh, indicators and build models. Um, so you're, you're, you're just working with a smaller number of, of files, and uh, you'll see why that's important in a moment. I'm going to... Uh, 
Uh, so the second thing uh, I'm going to demonstrate here is uh, the ability to manage both aggregate data and um, and some uh, and also other uh, outputs from houses. Uh, here's the essential facilities. We're also exporting uh, utility transportation, basically as much of the asset inventory model output data as we can from houses for the, the three hazard types. Um, we've just started experimenting with uh, taking user-defined and advanced engineering building module data out of houses as well. And I'm just going to show you uh, what that looks like and what the associated tables look like. Uh, again, it gives you the capability to look at uh, both your aggregate data and your user-defined data together uh, to try and get at the questions, what might be driving uh, uh, the, the patterns of damage, vulnerability, and risk in a particular area. So here are uh, user-defined uh, data for this earthquake risk model that we've generated uh, uh, for the same region. And uh, zooming in, we've got the liquefaction permanent ground deformation map underneath. Um, we get a sense of what the... Uh, what the loss patterns are with respect to some of the drivers that might be influencing uh, the patterns of risk in, in this particular area. And like the other layers, uh, we've combined the inventory and the um, risk data into one table. Uh, I think I'll, I'll uh, uh, leave it there. and and move on. I just wanted to show you a few other things before I run out of time. Um, and I think I will uh, I think I will bypass this one. Uh, you'll see in the in the final presentation when it's uh, delivered to you, uh, this demo would have shown you um, how to actually compare scenarios side by side, uh, which I think is one of the most powerful capabilities of, of community viz. Uh, well, I guess for that reason, maybe I should show it to you. Um, so I'll, I'll probably have to end with this demo and uh, leave a few of the, the other comments for the end. But here what I'm showing is now combining the two uh, event scenarios that we generated in Hazus and brought into community viz uh, side by side. Um, at least I hope that's what I'm going to do uh, here in a second. Uh, what you can see in the background uh, is um, uh, I've got now my map, and I have the indicators. Uh, and this actually isn't uh, this isn't what I wanted to show you. Uh, was uh, this one, scenario comparison. And I will end with this one. And uh, But I do think uh, it is worth having a look at. So uh, the map on the top, there are outputs from houses. On the bottom are the indicators represented in a series of charts. And what I've done here using community viz is uh, combine the two uh, event scenarios together so that I could compare them one against the other side by side. And so uh, here is a table, uh, a chart, I'm sorry, that's comparing the uh, two earthquake uh, events uh, that I ran, the one in 2,500 and the one in 1,000, and comparing, uh, in this case, we're looking at uh, displacement uh, shelter requirements uh, for those two uh, event scenarios side by side. 
As this is very helpful uh, to compare the outputs uh, one against the other by uh, individual indicators. Um, the uh, thing I didn't get a chance to show you is uh, each of these indicators, uh, if you have assumptions that you've attached to these indicators, they can be modified in community viz and the, and the results are updated dynamically. So if you have indicators that are dependent on, let's say, the recurrence interval or the planning horizon, obviously that's going to affect the risk overall. Uh, you can vary planning horizon and the risk will be recomputed on the fly dynamically. And this is extremely powerful uh, when we're presenting results to decision makers to help them understand what the sensitivity of some of the assumptions are in your model. Um, and with the last minute that I have, uh, this demonstration is going to show uh, how you can then take both the map and the, uh, the uh, um, analytic outputs, put them side by side, and now compare. Uh, we're looking at 1 in 2,500 and 1 in 1,000 year event scenarios with their corresponding uh, uh, indicators uh, side by side. Uh, so as you uh, move around in the study area, and now imagine that you're presenting results to a planner or an emergency manager, uh, they can see what the differences are between the different event scenarios that you've run, and you can start engaging them in a discussion about what might be some of the driving forces influencing patterns of vulnerability and risk in their community. Um, I'll, I'll end it uh, with that, and hopefully, uh, do I still have one minute? Okay. Um, we'll just get to PowerPoint to uh, behave here. So uh, some of the outputs then, uh, once you've generated these indicators, uh, you can start generating uh, things like these risk curves, which are, uh, here we're showing a portfolio of event scenarios for the study area, uh, different recurrence intervals, and we're looking on the bottom axis at um, the, uh, in blue, we're looking at anticipated economic losses for the whole suite of scenarios that we've run. Um, so you can see how uh, anticipated loss varies uh, with each of those events. And we've also looked at um, the red line is, uh, as numbers of uh, fatalities. Um, we found that these are extremely powerful ways to communicate risk, uh, the, the, the cumulative risk environment to decision makers. And this is where we start to get close to answering the question, how safe is safe enough and what constitutes a tolerable threshold of risk for your community? Now, this is an important conversation not only for municipal and regional governments, to, for them to start thinking about what resources they might need uh, and how much they can bear, but in turn, it's an important conversation that they need to have with higher levels of government who will come to their assistance when uh, their capabilities are exceeded. And uh, I didn't get a chance to uh, show the link to Landy's portfolio model, but uh, that's going to be covered in the next presentation. Um, and I'm going to end just with a comment that the work that we're doing is part of a broader initiative that you'll hear a little bit more about tomorrow uh, to extend uh, the capabilities of HAZUS into Canada. And as we do that, um, we're also trying to contribute to that effort by, uh, by uh, building some capabilities that may be of use to the broader HAZUS community in North America. And we hope that some of the work that we've shown you here today, uh, the linkage between HAZUS and Community Viz, might be of interest uh, to the broader HAZUS community here in the U.S. And uh, if so, please let me know. Uh, this is a first phase of development. Um, we're hoping to go into a phase two development of this tool and get more into the scenario planning part of it. Uh, so if there is an interest, it would be helpful for us to know what level of interest there is. 
uh, and if there are specific requirements that we can uh, take into account as we move forward. And with that, uh, I'll thank you very much for your attention and uh, pass it over. Hello. Um, let me get this on the. There we go. So my name is Laura Dinitz, and I'm with the U.S. Geological Survey in Menlo Park, California. And today I'm going to um, talk about linking Hazus with a, a model that we've been developing at the USGS for a number of years called the Land Use Portfolio Model to evaluate regional scale mitigation policies. And uh, my colleague Jeff Peters is also here in the audience, um, and he helped, he worked on a lot of this project as well. So here's the overview of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to discuss the risk analysis framework that we're using, um, the land use portfolio model, um, using the LUPM with HAZIS, a tool that we developed called the Hazus Data Extractor that helps us connect output from Hazus to as input for the LUPM, and then an application of the LUPM that we did with Hazus to analyze earthquake risk for mobile home parks in Southern California. So for the risk analysis framework we're using, it consists of three main components, risk assessment, risk management, and risk communication. I know a lot of these have already been discussed at this meeting so far, but we're more focused on the risk assessment and risk management part in the work that we do. Um, the way we have it defined is that risk assessment in primarily involves developing scenarios and estimating damages and losses, and on the risk management side that involves evaluating choices for mitigation strategies, measures, and costs. So very often when I present on the LUPM, somebody always asks, how is this different than HAZIS? Isn't this the same as what HAZIS does? And so I think this framework really kind of clarifies that um, HAZIS um, as a tool to, um, is more on the risk assessment side, and the LUPM is more on the risk management side, and combining models like this really, um, really works well to, um, to um, accomplish more. Why did we develop the LUPM? Well, as we all know, natural hazards are increasingly impacting society as we expand into hazardous areas. And we wanted to target the question, how can we effectively invest resources to reduce natural disaster losses? And then um, we were also interested in the pre-disaster hazard mitigation plans that communities have to do and the requirement that they need to um, prioritize possible mitigation actions. And so we've been thinking about maybe how to develop a tool as, as these plans get more sophisticated of how to um, better prioritize possible actions. So the, the land use portfolio model is geospatial and it's an interactive decision support system. 
The purpose is to help communities make decisions about how to invest in a portfolio of locations and mitigation measures to reduce losses from natural hazards. Um, this, these um, images show what the, the PM tool dialog window looks like when you open it up and um, an example of selecting a portfolio of locations of, um, in this case, all tracks within a selected study area. Some of the input data that the LUPM needs, um, and there's different kinds, natural hazard, land use, and socioeconomic information include hazard type, severity and likelihood, geographic extent and the community assets at risk, the planning time horizon, dollar values of assets, the conditional spatial likelihood of damage, which is the likelihood of damage given that an event occurs, a mitigation strategy, which I'll explain more, and the cost and effectiveness of these strategies. So how does the LUPM use hazardous data and results? Here are three ways. Well, to calculate total asset values by census track, tract, um, we use the building inventory, in particular numbers of structures. Um, some methods of estimating mitigation costs, we can use exposure values or replacement costs. And uh, most importantly, to calculate avoided losses and rates of return, we use the hazardous damage um, proportions and values. And then um, HAZUS combines the HAZUS damage probabilities and losses with a hazard event probability, asset values, a mitigation strategy, which is a portfolio of locations and or mitigation measures in which to invest, mitigation options and their costs, and estimates of mitigation effectiveness. And then the LUPM estimates avoided losses through mitigation, rates of return on mitigation investment, and measures of uncertainty for different mitigation strategies. And this just shows us an example of some of the uh, model outputs from the LUPM. So then the point is, how do we compare these different mitigation policies or mitigation strategies? Um, and one way is to repeat this process to define, compare, and rank um, multiple policies um, according to the user's preferences. This is one example. This graph shows one analytical example of how to compare them. It's called a risk-return graph. And the preferred policies would be, would have a higher um, expected return and lower standard deviation. So um, as I mentioned, the, we developed a HAZUS data extractor tool to help us um, run HAZUS several times and save the results into a database that we could then use for input into the LUPM. So, um, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about this tool, but we also have um, a poster that we did that um, explains in much more detail. I guess you call them a map here. Um, and um, there's, there's a copy in the, in the book that we all got. So, um, but just briefly, um, the, this has a state extractor tool. It's a software application that extracts data from HAZUS um, databases and the ESRI geo databases for selected study region and hazard or a result set. And this um, slide lists some of the data that you can extract, the general building stock inventory damages, economic losses, social impacts, and induced damages. And um, these images just show some of the um, windows that open up when you run it. 
And then the extracted information can be saved in an ESRI geodatabase as either detailed or aggregated data. And um, the attributes that you can um, save depend on um, the hazard type. And this works for earthquakes and flood hazards. So now I'm going to talk about an application that we did for analyzing earthquake risk for mobile home parks in Southern California. Um, the motivation for doing this study, there were three main points. First, the USGS Multi-Hazard Demonstration Project um, did, um, developed a shakeout earthquake scenario, uh, and the results of that scenario showed mobile homes at high risk. Secondly, the USGS probabilistic seismic risk maps also show that for mobile homes. And thirdly, um, the recent 2010 Baja California-Mexico earthquake resulted in a lot of mobile home damage with um, many people displaced from their homes. Um, so um, I'll talk a little bit more about that. The main steps are to choose the study area and scenarios, estimate the damage and losses with hazards, and then evaluate the mitigation options with the LUPM. And then I'll briefly discuss some preliminary analysis results. So um, these, this is some of the output from the shakeout results. This is um, published. You can find it in a um, publication online somewhere. Um, and it just, these um, graphs show that um, mobile homes were disproportionately impacted by the shakeout scenario, um, shakeout earthquake scenario. And then these show those probabilistic seismic risk maps that I mentioned. Um, if, Starting at the top left and going to the bottom right, we get more and more detailed. You can start to see some of the cities that are in the higher uh, mobile home earthquake risk areas. So using that information to decide on a study area, we selected six cities that were at um, high risk of earthquake damages and losses and that also had substantial mobile home populations. So those cities ended up being San Bernardino, Hemet, Palm Springs, Indio, Coachella, and El Centro, which is further south. And this table just so, shows some of the statistics. You can see Hemet has um, over 11,500 mobile homes in 58 mobile home parks. Um, San Bernardino has um, over 4,000, as does Indio. And so um, there are a lot of mobile homes in these areas. And of course, um, we had to do our study area data preparation, which in this case, we digitized mobile home parks manually using Google Earth and ESRI satellite imagery. And we had to have um, some discussions about what to include um, and what could be included within our you know, time frame. Um, so we discussed including mobile home parks versus individual uh, mobile homes and RVs. Also, this image shows an example of a mobile home park that's very close to, if you can see that red line, is the um, San Andreas Fault. So the second step is to select our hazard scenarios. And so we selected seven earthquake scenarios from USGS Shake Maps, which I'm happy to see has also been mentioned here a no number of times. Um, they were based on having uh, magnitudes greater than 5.0 and also um, being near the, our selected cities. Um, so this list, we had several scenario earthquakes, and then um, we also were able to use some um, historical earthquakes. 
And here's an example of one of the shake maps that's near El Centro. So for the next step, we ran the Hazus Level 2 earthquake analysis to estimate our damages and losses. We imported our mobile home park data set and our shake map earthquake scenarios. And um, here's an example table of some of the loss estimates that um, we've got in million dollars for three of the earthquake scenarios by city. And we ran this for both pre-code and moderate code seismic design levels. And then these maps show the peak ground accelerations and loss estimates for one of the scenarios, the ShakeOut 7.8 scenario earthquake for pre-code and moderate code by tract. And then um, this is the same idea, just a couple other scenario earthquake examples, the San Jacinto 6.7 and the North Palm Springs 5.7 historical earthquake. So now we get to the next step, which is um, running an LUPM analysis to evaluate mitigation strategies and options. And so to do that, we select our portfolio of locations and or mitigation measures in which to invest our limited budget. And these, this is a list of examples of some of the mitigation strategies that we ran. For example, we ran um, a strategy where we mitigated no census tracts, we mitigated all census tracts, we mitigated tracts with estimated losses over a million dollars, tracts that contain over 500 mobile home units, tracts that meet certain socioeconomic conditions or descriptions, um, tracts that are close to um, fault lines, and then we also ran um, strategies for selecting all the tracks within a city. And then we had to come up with hazard event probabilities. Um, this can be kind of challenging for earthquakes, but fortunately um, the working group on California earthquake probabilities um, has been developing earthquake estimate, um, probability estimates for earthquakes. And so these values that we used for um, our scenarios are based on those methods. Then we needed to have market value estimates, which we um, estimated using average price per square foot for mobile homes by city based on the areas of the mobile homes that we sampled from the imagery, as well along with the median values of the structures from U.S. Census data. And then from that information and from HAZIS information, we get our expected loss estimates. So expected loss is generally a function of the probability of an event occurring, the probability of damage occurring given the event occurs, and the values at risk. So um, we acquired our damage probabilities from the hazardous results tables, and we acquired the hazardous loss estimates by census tract using our hazardous data extractor tool. Um, as far as earthquake mitigation for mobile homes, uh, we called around and found out that the main um, mitigation is to use a, what's called an earthquake-resistant bracing system. Um, in our modeling, we're assuming that that will raise the building code and has us from pre-code to moderate code, which is why I showed those maps before. And just as a note, HAZUS treats all building code levels um, the same above pre-code for mobile homes. Um, and then we were, um, we were told that um, a good average mitigation cost assumption would be about $2,500 per mobile home to install these by calling companies that actually did that kind of work. 
So these are some of our preliminary LUPM analysis results. Um, it looks like our highest rates of return on mitigation investment comes falls under the Coachella scenario. Um, and some of the lowest fall under the Palm Springs scenario. And um, I can talk a little bit about why that happens. Um, the Coachella scenario results are high because the Coachella scenario earthquake has the highest probability by a lot, Thank you. Um, by an order of magnitude. Most of the shaking in that scenario is very close to the city of Coachella. Um, mitigating the highest expected losses often has higher rates of return than other strategies. That relates to strategy number three that I mentioned. The tracks closest to the earthquake get selected, were selected and got lots of shaking. And mitigating all of the Coachella tracks is similar to mitigating the tracks close to the earthquake fault. On the other hand, the Palm Springs scenario results are low because that had a low event probability and peak ground accelerations and small extent of shaking. So then we took all these results and we put them into this risk return graph. Um, you can see that the red squares are the Coachella earthquake scenario results or LUPM scenario results and they're the highest. Um, the preferred mitigation strategies are toward the upper left. So this is the idea of how we're trying to come up with ways to compare different strategies. Um, and that's really the end of my talk. Um, here's some contact information for myself. Um, Peter Ng is our software developer. He um, built the LUPM and the Hazardous State Extractor tools. Um, and um, Jeff Peters did most of the work on the mobile home park application. Um, and here's some websites for our software. By the way, we're, USGS, all of our um, software is free. Some of it's um, research oriented, so it's not, um, it's not polish, a polished piece of software that someone can just pick up and use, but it is um, accessible. If anyone's interested, please let us know. Um, we're very interested in, um, um, the, well, the USGS is very interested in us working and collaborating with other agencies and communities. So if anyone sees any um, potential interesting applications for this kind of work, please contact us and let us know. And then I can take questions. Thank you. getting close to the end. Um, <clears throat> yesterday you got a snippet of, um, of this particular project to help uh, support the point that uh, the folks from the region were trying to make. And today I'll delve into a little more detail. Uh, I heard Kevin say before 
he always likes to take a, a, a training opportunity. Um, I, I tend to approach these uh, types of presentations the same way. This isn't all about um, uh, the results. A, a lot of it has to do with what did we have to do to get there. And I know that the Hazus Conference uh, often draws folks from all ranges of experience and skill levels. So uh, I'm not afraid to um, tell you what went wrong, so to speak. Uh, again, in Broome County, why do a project there? So new preliminary flood mapping and the work that went into that indicated that discharges were uh, on an upward trend. As well, the increased flow created the uh, potential issues because there wasn't enough freeboard on the levees and wall system in the uh, city of, of Binghamton and uh, some of the neighboring communities. So with risk map, there was an opportunity to try and take a look into um, some of the more advanced options available in hazards. And as well, Broome County had a pretty good GIS system. So just to get everybody in the neighborhood, you'll see Lake Ontario up there, um, New Jersey, my home state. I got to put a plug in for Jersey, come on. <laughs> and then zooming in, uh, I showed this again yesterday, but the area of green, uh, please note that on the previously effective regulatory mapping, the areas of green was shown as being uh, shaded X, so it's X protected by levee, essentially. And you have the levees and the wall system throughout these five communities. So let's talk about goals. There were some core goals, um, which was to demonstrate risk map products. Um, however, um, assessing the potential loss and damage behind the levees and flood walls was pretty much key. Now, because the folks at the region um, tend to you know, coordinate uh, with the community, the community had raised an issue and said, well, hey, we've got this area that um, we're looking to redevelop. So although much of this presentation may seem like some of what was presented under the flood model in terms of the user-defined facilities, the reason why we're in the land use element is primarily because of this area of mitigation interest. Um, and then also, uh, just with risk map, the vision uh, to take a look at what are the stock GBS versus these UDFs, and then let's take these UDFs and re-aggregate them and see how that compares uh, to the stock GBS. In addition, uh, there were some other uh, sub-goals, if you will. Um, of course, uh, converting the DFIRM mapping uh, for the new preliminary that would show the, the deaccredited levies um, and the UDF data development, how we could best incorporate what local data was available, the parcels um, and the assessor database. Uh, a field survey, and the field survey was an attempt to establish a statistical sample for primarily for first floor, uh, actually first floor height creation, but 
because the survey was done with a laser inclinometer and GPS, um, we were capturing first floor elevation. And then um, to use the LIDAR-derived ground surface in an attempt to uh, identify whether we could establish a first floor height by uh, manipulating, not manipulating, but by doing some uh, just simple subtractions between uh, highest adjacent grade and lowest adjacent grade. So jumping into uh, some of the sub-goals here, this is the uh, special flood hazard area depth grid, uh, just a visualization of what it looks like. I'm sure we've seen uh, enough of these today. Max depths, you'll notice, are about uh, 28 feet. Just a quick um, on, on how these are created, those who are, who are new to uh, flood modeling. Essentially, we do detailed um, analyses, um, uh, hydraulics, using the cross-sections, which will have water surface elevations associated with them. From that, we turn them into water surface tins and then do uh, subtraction of the ground elevation, which gives us our depth grids. This slide is uh, really more of a community-based slide uh, just to show that all of the user-defined facilities that were developed uh, were turned into workable maps that the community could pull up um, very quickly. This was actually created by the, the GIS staff and the folks at the region. And here is a close-up of those community maps. And what you can't read too well is that um, some of the essential facilities are called out on this particular map so that they're easily identifiable. So let me go into the field data collection. Um, a number of the attributes that were mentioned earlier were also collected for this project. Uh, first floor elevation as an example, the building types, um, and whether or not they had a basement. We also were able to obtain a file from the county as to whether or not a basement existed or not. However, um, it wasn't entirely complete. This is to give you some perspective. Um, because of the sort of the geographic spread, I couldn't uh, really zoom in to show you uh, the well-defined points, but the gray masses are all of the um, user-defined facilities that were developed, and the black is uh, the sample point location. So we sampled approximately 10% of um, the user-defined facilities that were within the protected by levy. Now this is an important note that um, in order to do the um, comparison of re-aggregated general building stock, we had to make sure that we developed user-defined facilities in the entire census block. Uh, you will notice that there are a bunch of gray dots to the bottom and left. Um, this is um, something to keep in mind if you're going to embark on a project like this. So let's zoom in a little bit on one particular neighborhood. 
what, what we're showing here is really the, the spatial difference or inaccuracy that exists with the census block boundaries and local collected data. So the, the aerial photography here, or the orthophotography, is, is essentially the project base. And the black uh, census block outlines are what, what come out of the stock um, has this database. So in the previous slide, um, this project was shared to some degree with, um, with other elements of, of the FEMA program. And folks um, sort of charged forward uh, developing and digitizing building footprints in census blocks that, that did intersect the um, areas protected by levy. However, that was the raw census block data. And so after you do a, a spatial adjustment, which I'm showing here, um, the image on the right with the orange boundary shows the adjusted census block boundary. Now please note that this was only done to make sure that we assign census block appropriately to each user-defined facility, to each building footprint. It doesn't mean that we went into the HAZAS database and spatially moved those boundaries. This was just done externally for the, the purpose of, of um, capturing that census block to the building footprint. Uh, I showed this yesterday. This is just to give you, you know, some a close-up perspective. Uh, there are many user-defined facilities that, that were developed for this area, um, about 9,200. And you can see the, the sample uh, locations. On the right is the field data showing what we collected. For example, that the building is a masonry. Um, of, of course, it's elevation. Um, and that is at whatever was the identifiable entrance, uh, the number of stories, and so of course a, a picture was taken so that we could refer back to it. So here's um, an important point to make, which is the difference between main structures and accessory structures. Uh, in particular, if you look at the attribute table where I'm showing highlighted in yellow, this particular structure, according to the assessor database, has 14,000 square feet. You don't want to apply that to the shed out back, the garage, the pool house, etc. We're talking about the main structure, so that's an important thing to do if you're going to embark on this type of project. You may have building footprints and you say, great, let me charge forward. Hold on a minute. You need to, you need to parse out what is an accessory and what is the main structure, especially if you're going to try and apply your, your assessor database to it. Here's another little uh, lesson learned. It was a little bit of a miscue. Um, you'll notice that the, uh, the red dot is a field data sample that was collected. One of them shows up falling inside the envelope of the building. The other one is close, but not quite. Just, um, it, it could save you time um, maintaining a unique ID all the way through the life of the project. So that was something that didn't happen early on, and it just meant um, a little more manual work, but uh, it's a pointer. 
So then we move to um, the conflation that we did. So the conflation is, is talking about taking the assessor's data and using it to develop the appropriate attributes that HAZIS requires. On the top, I'm showing you uh, the field property CL, which is only on the right. This is just a little snapshot. We have values of 210, 220, 230, 311, 449. On the bottom, I'm showing you what those uh, codes are and I'll show you where I got them from in a moment. Those are, those are assessor codes. <clears throat> and the, the assessor code has three different levels. There's a code one, residential. That's sort of, you know, top tier. Go down a level. Well, there's a, a one family year-round residence. And then code three, well, in that case, it's blank. In the HAZIS um, uh, occupancy class, that's considered a residential one. That's a pretty easy one. So <clears throat> what was done, though, is that the um, New York State of uh, Real Property was, was consulted. Um, I took each of these codes that are found, so like here, residential, and it's being blown up. You can see that 200 is the gross for residential. 210, one-year family residence. 220, two-family year-round residence. So a relate table or a join table was created based on all the codes that exist here at the New York um, Assessor's Data um, website. That was used to uh, quickly assign the occupancy to user-defined facilities. However, in some cases, um, we weren't able to make an easy match. So up at the top, I'm showing that uh, we have a code one was commercial, code two was miscellaneous services, code three was junkyards. I don't know off the top of my head what type of commercial property in terms of what HAZIS wants, uh, wh whether it's supposed to be COM one, two, three, or all the way down to 10. So using the um, Department of Labor um, occupational uh, safety uh, website, I just did a search for junk. And it comes up with a code, if you see number two here, of 5093. So going to the HAZIS manual, we have table 3.1. We see that COM2 is wholesale trade, and it has a core SIC code of 50. And because scrap and waste materials is classified also as a 50. So now I know up at top, the occupancy, I can tag it as a COM2. Now, please note that um, there, I'll go back here. When it came to uh, certain industrial codes or certain commercial codes, uh, there was a lot of research that was required. So um, it, depending upon how well developed your assessor's data is, is going to depend on how much research you're going to have to do. Some other little pointers. Um, Tax assessors code apartments and other rental dwellings as commercial. Uh, HAZIS does not. HAZIS requires it to be residential. And you need to know the number of units. So if you are with a local community, a county, and you have any influence with your tax assessor um, or with your building code department, 
and you want to do some of these types of projects in the future, you might want to talk about um, trying to capture these types of attributes. Um, because I had to do research otherwise, and I had to do some, some fancy, uh, for example, I might have had a range of addresses. And so uh, I thought, okay, well, then that's got to be five different units because it goes from you know, 100 to 105. Some of those types of assumptions were made and had to be made. Another one is watch out for those building footprints. Um, a lot of times people contract out building footprint uh, digitization, and they don't always capture uh, townhomes. They, they'll get it as one building footprint, but there's actually 20 different owners here. So that's another thing to look out for. There were many other um, assumptions made that I just can't go into right now. Now, jumping over to the lag-hag analysis, um, our general assumption was that the delta between the two would allow for an assignment of first floor heights for all of the non-surveyed buildings. And our method was just basically to um, extract the hag and the lag at each building footprint and compare that to known samples as well, compare it to um, the uh, default that HASIS uses. And I'm showing, I'm showing that here. Uh, this is from table 311. And you can see that, for example, um, basement, whether it's a, a pre or a post firm for user-defined facilities, the assumption is that it's going to be four feet from the first floor down to the ground. What did we find? So please note uh, the table shows the foundation type, the different types that we found in the field, their firm status, what's in table 311, what we found from the HAG-LAG and the survey. So in general, uh, in this area, the um, LAG-HAG uh, hypothesis was just not quite reliable. But we make the point that if you don't have anything else, it, it's possible that for some, um, for some areas, you may be able to use it, but uh, you're probably better off going with the, with the hazardous defaults. Some reasons why. Um, number one, footprints were not burned into the, the ground data. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily the route to go. However, that is a function, uh, I believe, of why we had some uh, results that didn't work. Um, lack of an ability to assess um, the buildings that fronted rivers. So I'm showing here uh, on the top a, a building footprint that existed on the downslope of the river. And actually the, the back end of it was like a, a deck uh, on piles. So it really wasn't a true footprint. But that affected the, uh, the results. And in some cases, the building footprints that had been uh, digitized prior um, you can see that there was a, a mistake made. The, the rooftop was digitized as opposed to where that footprint truly is on the ground. So that skewed some results. <clears throat> so here are um, basic examples of uh, results. You can see this is the, um, the stock MR5. And naturally, we see most of our damage along the river. This is just for a quick visualization. 
um, jumping into each of the uh, protected by levy areas you can see uh, only those that are damaged here the points shown are only those damaged now what we did is a levy comparison um, since I'm getting short on time the one thing that I wanted to point out the four columns on the right-hand side, under the orange, you can see we basically have the, the MR5 stock data compared to the UDF. And if you look at the loss ratios, uh, I think it's important to note that they're relatively the same for the residential and the commercial. However, there's quite a bit of difference in terms of the, um, the other which is going to be uh, a lot of industrial in this particular area. And then, of course, because this was a risk map project, we also did a comparison for the entire community. Um, and this is showing, again, on the right-hand side, the comparison of the stock MR5 and then the updated GBS, which was re-aggregated from the user-defined facilities. So now the area of mitigation, I'm starting to run out of time, so I think I need to get to it. It's in uh, the city of Binghamton, and I, I've got it outlined there in black with the arrow. Um, this is a location where the red circle shows, where the, the, the new preliminary mapping showed that that was hydraulically connected to this area of mitigation. It's, it's an industrial area that they wanted to redevelop. Um, now, the city of Binghamton has kind of fallen on hard times, as I understand. Um, and so they're trying to, um, to get things going again. This is just a look down the particular street that uh, causes the hydraulic connectivity. This is the floodplain mapping shown over top of it. But now, this project also um, uh, disclosed the fact that uh, there were some issues with the ground LIDAR data. If you look on the lower left, we have this Brandywine Street, which is a very similar situation to Robinson. And the, um, the overpass had not been removed from the LIDAR data. So therefore, it was showing as being disconnected. and. By looking into this area of mitigation, it essentially opened the door for realizing that um, this was missed. So just jumping into um, sort of the, the purpose of this project, it was to, to show the local community what is at stake. So we showed what was at stake behind the levees, and now specifically we're showing what is at stake in uh, this area of mitigation interest. From that, some um, discussion with the local community. And let me note, uh, Alan Springett uh, is with Region 2. Uh, he wasn't able to come. And Alan has had much more interaction with the local community. I have not. I was hoping that he would be able to embellish on that for you folks, but un unfortunately he couldn't be here. But as I understand, uh, after discussion with the local community, there were some mit <coughs> excuse me, mitigation options that were discussed. Uh, adding control structures, um, suggesting on-site fill 
for individual buildings, other property protection measures, some site-specific structural protections, um, folks obtaining flood insurance, of course, any combination. Of course, and I think no action probably shouldn't even be on there, but I guess it's always an option. Just so you're aware, because this was an early demonstration project, there is an associated flood risk report, which you can view if you have questions about it, as well as a flood risk um, data model that was uh, a database that was created and delivered, the risk map. And just to make sure we're clear, in terms of the, uh, the life cycle, this project is um, specifically associated with identifying the hazard, assessing the risk, and to some degree trying to help the local community create uh, a mitigation strategy. All right, thank you. Are there questions for uh, any of our three speakers?